You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. We come to you with the information that you need so that you can advocate for your families and for yourself regarding your health care needs. This show is brought to you by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, which is the only physician-led health care think tank in the country. We need your support so that we can continue to do this show and all the other work that we do throughout the year around the country, fighting for your health care freedom and for the doctor-patient relationship. There's no time uh, more important than uh, fighting for those positions than right now. So please, while you're home on self-quarantine, go to your computer and look up the website, which is www. D. Um, let me start again. Triple W D. The number four. PCFoundation.org. That's D four PCFoundation.org. And please give generously. No amount is too small. No amount is too large. But we need you in the fight with us. So please join. Well, we are now on day 38 of our um, national shutdown from this COVID crisis, and uh, life is very different than it was just a little over a month ago. Um, it's, um, uh, it's nothing that we've ever dealt with before, and uh, it's it's really quite uh, quite unsettling. Every moment of every day almost seems to be uh, filled with something about the COVID emergency. We have been talking about this on the show for the last month or more, um, and um, and it uh, has sucked all the oxygen out of the room, unfortunately. But um, there's, there's lots to talk about, lots to understand, and to help us do that today, I have invited uh, a, a longtime friend, uh, colleague, someone that I have uh, worked closely with, um, Dr. Stephen Shore, who is the um, former chief of pediatric uh, infectious disease at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Um, he is... Uh, uh, a long history of dealing with uh, infections, infectious disease. Um, with uh, he's worked at the CDC. He is uh, uh, a, a well-respected doctor in the Atlanta community, named as a top doctor in Atlanta um, uh, a number of times. And um, it's my pleasure to invite uh, you into the doctors' lounge this morning, Stephen. Good morning. All right. Good morning, Hal. Glad to be with you. Well, thank you. I'm glad to have you here, and I appreciate you taking some time out from your busy schedule to uh, be with us today, have a, have a conversation, talk about some of the things that are quite confusing uh, to most people out there. So, Steve, let's start out by just uh, talking about um, this pandemic. Um how, how is this different than any other uh, disease that we see, the flu season, or other diseases that we have dealt with in the past? Well, the, the problem is, is that the virus, uh, as the name says, is novel. And this is the first really large uh, epidemic caused by the coronaviruses. We previously had two uh, coronavirus uh, small concentrated epidemics, one called uh, SARS, S-A-R-S, the other called MERS, M-E-R-S, and those two affected perhaps five to 10,000 people total, but really never entered into the United States. Uh, this one is uh, a true pandemic uh, and is present on all of the uh, continents of the world, perhaps except Antarctica. Um, the coronavirus, just as background, uh, I had a conversation with a fellow also named Hal, Hal for Harold, <clears throat> in CDC in, this, in the 1970s, and he said, no one's interested in these viruses. They're very beautiful. They have these wonderful spikes on their surface. They affect animals, but so far we don't have much in the way of uh, human pathology other than 
they seem to cause colds in some individuals. And I don't know if Hal is still alive. He was a little older than me, but he would know that he was carrying on the tradition of studying uh, the coronaviruses, which, by the way, under the electron microscope were absolutely beautiful. So <laughs> it's just funny that this is all, uh, it's all come around. Uh, but the, well, the major, to answer your question, we don't have the tools yet to measure things. When we, we deal with the flu, which really does cause pandemics every, uh, every year, we don't call it that. We just say flu's going around, but it spreads everywhere. But we have very good tools, uh, both epidemiologically and uh, biologically and serologically and clinically to follow influenza. We don't have any of this right now for coronavirus. Uh, because we're only about three months into the uh, epidemic, pandemic. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Steve, it's, it's, you know, nobody's ever experienced anything quite like this. Um, I think, I guess, the, the um, you know, there's been other epidemics um, and there's been pandemics, but there are very few people alive. The last time there was a pandemic, which I guess would be the uh, pandemic at the uh, beginning of the of the 20th century with flu. But this COVID business and COVID-19 um, uh, issue has taken up almost 100% of the attention on TV, newspapers, and the Internet. And um, this an abundance of information now because of the 24-hour news cycle that everyone can access. And now everyone's an expert. Is this a good thing? I, you know, I, I viewed this in a similar way to climate science, which is extremely complex, but it's been dumbed down and oversimplified to a point where even people with limited intelligence have opinions about this, and it's often incorrect. And most people are incapable of understanding the true science behind the field of climate. But there's no opinion of shortage. And what we're seeing now with COVID almost seems to be approaching that same that same frenzy of of just an abundance of information. And if you disagree with the with you know the uh, orthodoxy of of uh, of thought that you're a COVID denier. What what uh, what say you about this? Well, no, I would agree. Everyone is an expert on everything, and I, I see this frequently in with my patients' contacts that they're more of an expert because they went and read somewhere that this and that and was so, and uh, you have all these years of experience and perhaps uh, pretty good success in treating certain things, and uh, parents have their own idea. I think... Um, the major problem is is that this situation is analogous uh, to a war. It's been compared to a war. And in the World War II, which is, I think, the closest analogy to it, all of the country was involved. My grandmother went to the Navy Yard in Philadelphia to sew uh, uh, things for the military. Uh, my father was building ships in Chester at Sunship. These were Liberty ships. Everybody was involved. But the means of communication were very limited. And so the whole country was literally pushed into the right mind with what today would be called uh, propaganda, but good propaganda. Now we get propaganda from all, all uh, corners, very well-meaning, but very much off the mark. And uh, obviously we can't put the genie back in the box because we have you know, our First Amendment rights and the like, but it is some of the things I'm hearing is akin to crying fire in a hill in the crowded cinema. It's uh, pretty awful. So every night we listen to TV and we hear doctors. Doctors now have newfound respect (laughs) after, after, uh, finally, uh, finally, yes, finally, exactly right. After such a, a, a long, a long period of being marginalized as, as providers, and it was still providers, I guess, in a sense. That's a topic for another discussion. Yeah. No, I hate the but, I hate the word I hate the word provider. But go ahead. Yes. I, I do too. <laughs> but but we're listening to them every single day, multiple every hour. There's a doctor on a different show, and um, they're talking about um, the incidence of COVID, the mortality rates testing, treatment, possible vaccinations. We're so oversaturated with doctors talking about this. 
Dr. Oz and Dr. Phil, who have found newfound popularity and credibility through this crisis. So how is a layperson supposed to cut through all this and get information that's reliable and meaningful? Uh, that's a very good question, and we all go into our information silos. I mean, I'm personally, I watch CNN a lot. I occasionally watch Fox, and I occasionally watch uh, uh, CNN, uh, CNBC with Rachel Maddow. I try to get my information from different sources, but uh, it's hard not to listen to a group of uh, individuals I respect, like Tony Fauci, uh, maybe to a lesser degree, Deborah Burks. Uh, Dr. Ridfield at CDC. I do enjoy hearing from them because I know they've all made contributions. And uh, Tony and I were fellow immunology researchers back in the 70s, although he was more prolific than I was. He was at the NIH. So it's good to listen to those. But nobody wears uh, like a, you know, a star of the Republic thing like back in Soviet Russia where you say, this is the, the only view that you can hear. It has the imprimatur of, uh, of the government. And then, of course, you hear uh, it being politicized because uh, Tony will say one thing on the air, and then he'll be sort of have to be walked back, or he'll be forced to walk it back by uh, by the president, or less or so the vice president. So it even then gets more confusing. And then I hear Tony Fauci gets hate mail, which to me is absolutely incredible because he's a he is a fantastic guy. He was a great researcher. And his opinion needs to be esteemed because he's been head of NIAID for 35 years. I mean, he's been head of NIAID almost as long as I've been at my hospital, which is about 44 years. <laughs> so it's very, very confusing. The bottom line is it's very, very confusing. And uh, people probably get so mad at what's said on Fox or CNN or something. They don't even want to, you know, talk. Uh, they don't even want to call in for another opinion because it challenges their deeply cherished beliefs, not the facts. Steve, you are a, 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 a first day, I mean, professionally, your first day, a pediatrician, secondly, an infectious disease expert, um, but but you are, um, you're a, a, a citizen of the world, and this is this is a a terrible disease that we're dealing with right now, and um, you know there's there's um, multiple uh, aspects of things that need to be considered when we address something like this. So so how do you how do you safely um, manage this problem to try to get it under control, and and yet. Um, be be um, somewhat sensitive to the other aspects of of what complete shutdown actually means to people and and their lives and and you know some people are are quoting um, studies from the mental health um, literature about um, problems like this resulting in. Uh, increased incidence of depression, anxiety, and suicide. So what's worse? Yeah, so when I was in college, uh, I remember studying philosophy, and one of the uh, great contributions of the 19th century was utilitarianism. It was a school founded by Jeremy Bentham. I still remember it. Uh, And basically, he preached that what is right to do is what's good for the greatest number. In other words, what produces the greatest good for the greatest number. And that's what we have to think about. Uh, when this thing first broke out, I said there's going to be a lot of collateral damage. In medicine, we have people not wanting to come in for services that they need, or they want an antibiotic over the phone, or uh, they don't want to come into a doctor's office. And uh, I was always worried that if you had shortness of breath, yeah, you may have COVID, but you might also have asthma that goes untreated, or you may be having a heart attack and don't go to the hospital. So from the medical standpoint alone, the collateral damage hasn't been toted up yet, but it's probably very significant. So I, I share your, you know, your concern for all this, including mental health. I have a son who has a chronic mental uh, condition. Uh, he had just gotten a job, believe it or not, as a dishwasher at a restaurant, and immediately mm. was let go two or three weeks later 
because of the COVID epidemic, and now he has nothing to do, which only feeds the kinds of problems he has by having all this downtime. So I, I've experienced this already in my family. Uh, no, I, I agree with you. The total picture is very disturbing. And the, that's the reason we need a, a true national plan that everybody can get behind. Just like we did in World War II, we were determined to defeat the enemy who was, in fact, as heinous as the propaganda stated, as history has proven, and uh, have everybody sign on. And in this era of, you know, linguistic contentiousness, we have to get as many people to sign on as we can to it. But what that plan is, I'm I'm not uh, Donald Trump, I'm not uh, Dr. Rickfield, I'm not in charge of it, but I can see the outlines of what the plan would have to be. Do you think that the team that he assembled is um, is are the right people? Are they doing a good job? Um, what, what, what do you think about that? I think the individual people I've seen so far uh, are quality people, and the people I've heard, at least on CNN, are legitimate uh, experts. I don't watch Fox very much, I confess, so I'm not sure uh, who they're getting on. But he has a good tra- team, unfortunately, <clears throat> by squelching... What they are saying, I've watched Dr. Fauci's mental, uh, physical, facial contortions while Trump says some of the things he says, and I can see him, you know, literally biting his tongue, walking a tightrope between saying something that's true, but something that won't get him fired or keep him from appearing at these uh, at these briefings. But you know, 98 percent of what Tony says, I would would agree with, and, and uh, he, people like like him really guiding the effort. Uh, free of political interference as much as possible. I mean, uh, no politics is impossible in society, but minimal political interference would be desired, I think. All right, well, I, I don't disagree with that, but unfortunately, every day, every minute of the day on TV, uh, on news, it's all about politics, and uh, we've we've right. um, we've basically. Um, uh, chosen sides and uh, it's almost like two parallel universes as far as the news is concerned so it's it's fighting something like this poses an even greater challenge when each side has so much distrust for the other and i Correct. don't know what no, that's absolutely is. right right all, all experts people have confused elites. We used to say elites mostly were born to it. They were born rich, like uh, Donald Trump. And so you're an elite. You have a, a trust fund of $450 million to use. And I have nothing against rich people. I just find that kind of eliteness is more crippling. And I think it inhibits you from doing what you need to do. And then you have people who have earned their elite status through pretty much hard work, going going to school, paying their dues, uh, as they say in one of the commercials uh, for reverse mortgages, doing the right thing. And uh, <laughs> those are the elites. Really, uh, not Tom Selleck. I mean, he does it well. But uh, doing the right thing. And these are the people we should be listening to because, uh, you know, it, to, to me, to, to lie to people about the COVID epidemic, if I was in Tony Fauci's position, what would I possibly gain from doing that? Uh, right. I, you know, no vested interest. So we should be listening. But it's just like now you tell a person he needs a a urological procedure, he immediately goes on the Internet and starts second-guessing you and comes up with someone who can totally defeat you. And that certainly happened to me in in infectious disease. And it's uh, this level of distrust to the uh, false information. Let me mention something else that I like. I've become a bit of a philosophical person. Uh, Are you familiar with Gresham's Law? No, I'm not. Okay, so Gresham's Law is an economic law that states when good money and bad money, that is counterfeit money, circulates, the bad money circulates and the good money is hoarded. And that's what happens. Uh, the, the voices of the, uh, of the real truth get drowned out. The other version of that is Mark Twain saying, you know, a lie gets halfway mm-hmm. around the world before the truth is putting its pants on. And that's the same thing. That, that's what we're that's what we're fighting with right now, and it's very disturbing. You don't want to be an, uh, an academic snob 
by doing the right thing. But then you, you, you're accused of being an elite who went to Harvard or something like that. And it's, uh, you know, as a working class kid, that's very disconcerting, you know. <laughs> well, you know, this is that's, this is um, a good jumping off point talking about this yeah. information about about treatment and um, yeah. there's there's really um, uh, only three treatments that seem to be effective right now against COVID and and I'd like to I'd like to um, go into that you know right now before sure. the break you know we're talking sure. about hydroxychloroquine uh rem uh, rem remdesivir and you uh, and correctly uh, that's correct <laughs> thank you and convalescent <laughs> and convalescent plasma and correct. um you know there's there are um again where you get your news what doctors are on TV who's reporting will will very much color your opinion about all of these treatments and I'd like to hear what you have to say about them and then we can talk about you know how they're being treated in the media right so the uh, story of hydroxychloroquine which by the way my wife takes for her lupus is that it's not proven to work so far and a recent study suggests it may in fact be deleterious that's the VA study yeah, no, that's just a recent VA study, and uh, the, the difference between the untreated and treated groups it, it was pretty substantial, actually, pretty scary. So if I was a COVID patient, I would not be taking Plaquenil or uh, hydroxychlor- uh, dihydroxychloroquine. Uh, that's the story on that. The president, of course, has been touting it, and he wants to pull the, you know, the god out of the machine, the rabbit out of the hat, and tout the drug, and uh, I think that increases his appearance of knowledge and power. But the fact is, he doesn't know, he literally does not know what he's talking about. And we're only but going yet, to find out with some carefully controlled studies. Well, but unfortunately, in situations like this, we often can't do that. And we have to use experiential medicine and, and not, um, you know, not uh, use uh, uh, a, a uh, randomized, double-blind studies, which are clearly the best. But... You know, taking that logic that he doesn't know what he's talking about, there are six hospitals in uh, in New York that are using this as a frontline treatment right. for for patients that are not at the at the um, uh, who have not progressed before, way before they've gotten to the point where they have to uh, be intubated, and that's where. The people in the VA study were when they were treated, and the conclusion, you know, this that study has been right. has 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 been criticized for, for its methodology, and even the head of, of the VA walked sure. it back. Sure. So, no, no, so, no question. So, so who's right and who's wrong, and is this you know because the president, who's hated by so many people in this country, including right. almost all the media says something, if he says it's night out, people will say, no, it's day. And so is that happening with with Plaquenil right now? Because five five or six hospitals in New York can't all be wrong. They're not they're not, you know, um, they're not dealing with malpractice by treating these patients. So what's the story? Well, the answer is they don't know and Donald Trump doesn't know uh, either. And uh, the problem with what the president says is that he's told so many falsehoods that it's always hard to know, you know, he's in the moment, but then he contradicts himself the next day. It's just not a controlled way to produce information. However, those of us who aren't inclined to believe what he says most of the time tend to be, unfortunately, the better educated part of the population on the whole. And uh, it's, it, it, he, he, trump, he literally trumps on his own Trumpness by putting out information that's clearly proven to be false. He may be right on this, but this will need to be uh, proven. That doesn't mean the hospitals doing this are wrong. I use a number of things off-label, and uh, uh, I haven't published some stuff, but I'd like to tell you, you know, privately what some of these things are, and they work 
you know, like 98% of the time. Uh, but I'm not an academic, and an academic would say, well, you can't do that, you know, and I'm, you probably have right. something in your office that's well, like that. Yeah. Right. It would surprise, it would surprise most listeners, most lay people. Yeah. To yeah. know that in pediatrics, there's not one single drug that's FDA approved for children. That's they're correct. all, they're you know, all, they're, they're therapeutic, all therapeutic orphans. Yeah, they're all therapeutic orphans because they don't test enough kids. About five or eight years ago, they had to put a plan through Congress where pharmaceutical companies are required to have the pediatric on their drugs where they're required if they want to bring them to market that they have to test them. Uh, on children, provided children get the same diseases that these drugs are, uh, are aimed at. So, Steve, we've got about four minutes before the break, and then we're going to go ahead and uh, uh, talk about, take this in a little bit different direction, but um, or, or complete this conversation about other treatments. But but um, tell us about the, 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 the skinny on uh, remdesivir. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful it will work. Uh, I just treated a COVID patient at, at my hospital, and uh, he was getting very sick, almost needed a ventilator, and turned around. He was given a combination. He was acting septic, so he got some pretty heavy antibiotics that I, I doused him with and some steroids. And he turned around, and I actually saw him in follow-up yesterday. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to see him in follow-up tomorrow. I got, got him confused with somebody else, and he's doing amazingly well. But I, I have hopes that remdesivir, uh, used uh, uh, in a, a reasonably uh, controlled uh, study, uh, is going to be effective. I have. Can you can, can you tell people? It. Can you tell mm-hmm. people what it, what it was intended to do? Right. Well, it was originally used uh, in uh, a number of viruses, but especially in the Ebola uh, outbreak, where it was shown not to be uh, persuasively good, but. Uh, seems to have a broad activity in vitro, that is, in test tubes and, and petri dishes, uh, in cell culture lines for a number of viruses, including coronavirus. So this has definite uh, uh, promise and interferes with uh, the replication of the coronavirus. So that's that's the the remdesivir. What about right. um, what? Tell us about this um, this. Um, the the uh, enthusiasm about convalescent plasma. Right. Well, presumably, uh, and this has to be rigidly proven, you would make antibodies uh, as you're in the recovery or convalescent phase from uh, defeating a coronavirus infection, and then you could give the plasma or serum, that would be plasma in this case, from plasmapheresis, and you would then infuse this into patients uh, you could also, you know, concentrate it and make it into an immune globulin. Uh, that could be done with a number of uh, individuals. Or you could genetically engineer, uh, you know, plasma cells to make individual antibodies that uh, see parts of the virus. Um, uh, that's called, you know, monoclonal antibody technology. So all three are available. The quickest to get up and running is to get convalescent plasma, and that makes a lot of sense. That should limit the amount of viral uh, spread. What you don't want to do is cause immunopathology, where adding antibody literally makes things worse. In other words, you might get necrosis of lung cells and the like. So it's not 100% certain, but in most cases, our own antibody uh, tends to be uh, helpful toward the end of infection and uh, also can uh, be used perhaps as a preventative, uh, like uh, we use for hepatitis A. We use that, we use uh, a version of that to prevent hepatitis A infection. So so um, we're going to uh, need to go to a hard break, the only break that we'll have in the show. <clears throat> you are in the doctor's lounge we're talking with infectious disease specialist Dr. Stephen Shore, former uh, chief of infectious disease at uh, Children's Hospital of Atlanta, and we're going through um, his. We're picking his brain about uh, COVID today, so uh, we're going to take a break. Stay with us. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back into the Doctor's Lounge. We're having a conversation today about uh, not what else but the COVID uh, crisis with uh, my uh, longtime friend and uh, expert on infectious disease, Dr. Stephen Shore, the former chief of uh, infectious disease at Children's Hospital of Atlanta. And uh, we're trying to cover a lot of ground that um, many people are not covering regarding uh, this this whole uh, conversation surrounding COVID. So, Steve, when we broke for the break, we talked about treatments that are uh, out there for uh, COVID, um, which aren't aren't many, but there's there's three that are being discussed. Um, uh, quite extensively, and that's Plaquenil, Remdesivir, and convalescent plasma, which plasma, which we've discussed. Steve, are there any other uh, treatments that uh, are out there that that uh, are showing promise, or that we should uh, keep our eyes open regarding? Okay, so the only other thing is those for those people who really get sick. There are a lot of people who seem to do okay for a week and then they suddenly shoot downhill, suggestive of an immunologic reaction where your own immune response defeats you like it does in, in shock. We know that there's this disorderly uh, cascade of uh, uh, molecular materials put out by lymphocytes, monocytes, uh, macrophages called the cytokines, and you get a cytokine storm. And we are worried that that is one of the things that contributes to death uh, perhaps in the lungs, perhaps in other organs. So some of the things to keep your eye on is the use of immunosuppressants of various kinds, including steroids, which my patient received. It did seem, along with the antibiotics, to turn him around. Uh, the other thing is to look at some of the uh, monoclonal um, uh, proteins that we use, the, the, the group like Humira and Remicade, to see if turning down the immune system might, in fact, be helpful and I know there'll be some plans to study this along the way, too. There's just a lot we need to know about why this disease does so much damage to a minority of people uh, in their lungs. And I think we'll, we will figure this out. Uh, some of this needs to be carefully done through autopsies. I have not heard a lot of uh, stuff coming out yet about what the pathological lesions look like in the lungs of patients who have died. 
but certainly we have no shortage of deaths to do that on. And I'm hoping pathologists uh, are studying this both, you know, with their gross pathology, their microscopic pathology, and using immunochemistry. So I this think is a question. we'll hear more about this. Yeah. Steve, this is a question that's come up, you know, quite often, which is, um, and I don't know if this is, if there's anything really behind this, but people have been uh, instructed to avoid non-steroidal uh, anti-inflammatories like Motrin or or uh, Aleve. Um, what what uh, what do you think about that? And does, is that is that is there anything behind that? I don't think there's much behind it. It's uh, some of these drugs are like blame for Stevens Johnson, but you already have the fever. So parsing it out, I I, I would be highly dubious if these agents play a significant deleterious role. Obviously, they're Band-Aids if you have a fever or chills and feel lousy. But uh, if I had COVID and was symptomatic, uh, it wouldn't bother me to take ibuprofen, you know, or naproxen uh, Aleve at Mm -hmm. this point in time. So I I don't think that's a big concern from my standpoint. So here's another thing that's, uh, you know, popular right now, and that's trying to, again, politicize what's going on, make this into... A racial issue: How there's a disproportionate right. number of of minorities, specifically African Americans, who are um, who are contracting disease, and they're being uh, it's 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 being uh, equated with uh, disparities in health care. When in fact, it may be something quite different entirely. There are at risk populations for this disease, and and the, the at-risk populations, the diseases that that uh, put people at risk, um, are seen in higher numbers in the African American community. Is do do I have that right, or or is there yeah. is there something else you think? No, the thing can be both genetic, so an intrinsic factor. We know African Americans when they get tuberculosis actually do worse. I think that's been proven. Um, so. You know, there are, can be things, just like whites do worse with malaria, we know, because of the absence of the sickle gene. So we all have these genetic built-in things, uh, immune response genes. But obviously crowding, having to be on the front line, not being able to stay home from your job, uh, the population uh, kinetics of that clearly disfavors uh, groups of people who have to stay in the workforce while it's there. So it does bring out a lot of uh, things, and obviously... Uh, it's been politicized, and I, we could philosophize more about what that is ultimately later. But no, I agree, uh, mm-hmm. it, they are disproportionately affected, and this is something to, to start uh, thinking about. But we also know that physicians are disproportionately affected. We know what that is. We're on the front line, and we're taking a direct hit sometimes with yes. you know, poor, poor equipment. So I don't think it's mm-hmm. any different, quite frankly. I think we're mm-hmm. in the same boat with the, uh, the blacks and the Hispanics. Those of us are not black or Hispanic. Mm. So, so we talked about treatments. We spent some time doing that, and the I think that the the brass ring, you know, the you know what what everybody is uh, looking for as the as the as the uh, solution, the key out of this mess, are vac- is a vaccination for this. But is that I have a couple questions about that. Number one, is sure. it realistic i mean we've we have diseases out there that that uh have have been devastating that we've never had a vaccination for hiv is is a, a terrific example of of such a problem so is it you know we a lot of people have put a lot of have staked a lot of uh on uh, have staked a lot on uh, uh this being uh, over once we've gotten a vaccine, but is that something that we really should be uh, be putting all our eggs in that basket? No, we shouldn't put all our eggs in that basket, and I'll tell you why. Each virus is its own uh, critter. HIV just hangs out in lymphocytes, and you can't get at it. You might have a preventive vaccine, but once, obviously, the, the virus is in you, it's like herpes simplex. You can't get rid of it because it practices hiding out. In herpes, we call it latency. So that's one of the uh, obstacles. The other thing is we're, we're pretty good 
at vaccinating against agents that cause systemic disease. Why? Like with polio, because polio virus, to get from your GI tract to your brain and spinal cord, has to go through the bloodstream. And that's where it's susceptible to antibodies that can neutralize the virus. So that's almost a a no-brainer or a no-spinal quarter. As far as, I'm, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. But respiratory viruses are different. The only real respiratory virus vaccines that I can think of that we have in our armamentarium are the flu vaccines, which work, but not terribly well. And uh, I think a lot of that is because what happens in the respiratory tract, it's a different system. It's the IgA system. It's not as much influenced by systemic immunity that comes to you through the bloodstream. And, uh, and with antigenic variation and other things, we can get into that later with COVID, uh, we don't know that a vaccine uh, is going to really work for a respiratory virus. In fact, there was an experimental respiratory syncytial virus vaccine, RSV, that was done by the National Institutes of Health, used by the National Institutes of Health experimentally in uh, the 1960s, and it was deleterious to patients. So, in other words, we were adding probably immunopathology, and it was literally making the uh, the children and infants in this uh, study worse and was quickly withdrawn from study. So we have that as an example, too. Uh, I think uh, it depends on the vaccine that we create for COVID, and then it must be, you know, carefully tested to see if it can, uh, in fact, prevent infection or at least ameliorate it like flu does. Flu tends to... Mm-hmm reduce the number of hospitalizations, and uh, reduce the number of deaths. So while it's only about 50 to 70% protective against infection per se, it is about that protective against the virus uh, putting you in the hospital or killing you. And it's, it's so interesting, again, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's hard to, um, to unwind politics and and uh, the 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 experience of people and uh, their ability to say things without having any knowledge at all. But you know this whole thing about vaccinations. You know before COVID, the only people who were talking about vaccinations were those who were talking about it in a negative way, which are the anti. Uh, vaxxers, the ones who've, um, who've embraced the, the nonsense that's out there, um, that were based on a pack of lies. And many of those people are the Hollywood crowd. And these are the, these are the, the loudest voices now who are, who are screaming for vaccination for COVID. And I find this incredibly ironic. I'm sure you do as well. Yes. Of course I do. Yes. Right. I think, uh, you have to be careful when you can make, uh, speeches that influence people, and then you're not really held accountable. I think that's the problem. If a physician comes out with something that's, uh, you know, somewhat radical, uh, he may be right. I mean, the guy who claimed that bacteria caused uh, stomach ulcers was actually put in a mental institution, but he was held. <laughs> but at least he was held. He was held accountable, and later won a Nobel Prize. So he was held accountable in two different ways. <laughs> so that's that's an example. But, you know, the people who put stuff out on the Internet and the like, uh, you know, our freedom of speech again, um, saying something bad about something that saves people's lives actually literally kills people. And right now we have no accountability for it. Perhaps in the future there will be a way of addressing accountability. Not, not that we want to try to muffle speech, but we're all our brother's keeper whether we like it or not. And everything we say has meaning if it's picked up by sensitive ears. You know, it's uh, it, you teach people that vaccines are a plot from the, uh, the medical industry, the medical pharmaceutical complex. Uh, people just love conspiracies, and, and they stop vaccinating. And it's a terrible thing because we know vaccines work from over and over and over again. They're really the greatest, I think, intellectual contribution uh, in the 20th century with that question. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I would agree wholeheartedly. Um, a few, uh, uh, just a few minutes ago, you actually brought up a topic that I wanted to get into, which is flu. You know, I, we have a flu season, and um, that uh, that's something that I I don't really understand why there's a flu season, and I'm I'm hoping that you can uh, shed some light in that because 
right now, when 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 COVID came out, people were downplaying it and they're saying more people die every year from the flu than from COVID, which is now not the case. But but nonetheless, they're they're both uh, respiratory viruses, and uh, and and so they're they're often um, uh, commingled in the same discussion. So so first question: Why is there a flu season? Well, we think uh, it's something. Actually, you should say flu seasons because we had in 2009 we had the outbreak of uh, flu. And uh, if I remember correctly, it started in summer camps. So mm. typically it's a cooler weather disease, but we can see flu at any time of the year. But it tends to be in the cooler weather, and we believe that's because people are indoors, touching objects, not going on vacations, but staying at home. And then uh, all the respiratory viruses, with, with a few exceptions, tend to have a peak in cool weather. Some of them grow better at lower temperatures. So that may be it, but it's never been passed away. But what happens is uh, in new, the, the flu virus has an ability to mutate, and it starts either in the northern hemisphere and goes south, like uh, some of the some of the tides, like the, you know the Gulf Stream, and they move up into uh, they go from uh, north to south in the northern hemisphere, and they travel up, and uh, we sometimes can get a head start on them in determining uh, what they're like antigenically. Uh, but I think that's what it is. There's an ebb and flow from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere back to the northern hemisphere. And then the virus mutates based on what the serological uh, experiences of the population uh, and under pressure of, let's say, 100% of the population is immune to one antigenic form of uh, flu. So the virus mutates to take advantage of it. And then you see a new strain come up and it just modifies and modifies. Right now, we're searching for a universal flu vaccine that will hit all the different uh, strains simultaneously and give that every year, and that would be quite interesting. But we know flu does that. We call it antigenic drift, uh, and, uh, and sometimes we get an antigenic shift where it really goes from, you know, A1 to A2 to A3. But most of the time, these are minor things. Vaccines not work as well, and making our own hard one. Uh, antibodies not work as well, and uh, we get more things. The virus, of course, just wants to live just like we do. They're, it's a, their RNA up against our basically our DNA, and it's a fight for survival. So, Steve, you know, smart people, well, I don't know if I consider myself a smart person, but you are. I, have, <laughs> I have a little bit of knowledge, and, you know, and I try to do some some of my own research and try to see if there's some other other clue as to number one is there are the things that we can do to try to boost our immune system and in looking at this and thinking about this I'm, I'm wondering if there's maybe another reason besides crowding and indoors and touching things that causes causes a flu season and and um, what I'm getting at is that um, one of the one of the things that um, I've come across is that vitamin D is a very important uh, uh, vitamin uh, for uh, boosting the um, the pulmonary uh, the resistance of the pulmonary system to enhance it. Mm -hmm. And and when when uh, people are indoors, when there's decreased mm -hmm. sunlight and people's vitamin D levels go down, um, that actually may be uh, a reason why their pulmonary resistance also it, uh, suffers. Is there, is there any, 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 uh, anything behind that, you think? Uh, I mean, there could be. I don't really take a vitamin supplement. My own feeling is a, a good balanced diet, the, the seven food groups is what I was taught in the fourth grade, and that's pretty much what I practice, maybe too many carbs, but, uh, you know, that's, I'm human. Uh, no, I think there could be something to that. I don't see any harm in people taking uh, vitamin D supplements. Uh, it's, it's, it's very safe uh, as long as you don't take mega amounts. Uh, you know, if you take something like two or 3,000 international units a day, that may help. And, and I agree, being indoors, I think the biggest thing that makes disease more common and worse is is psychological stress, depression, 
and the like. Mm-hmm. I think taking care of your mental and spiritual health is absolutely key to not getting whacked by diseases so that diseases mm-hmm. uh, tend to crop up when you're, I mean, the word disease means you're lacking ease. And when you're already <laughs> diseased in terms of your mental outlook, every, every mm-hmm. symptom becomes felt and the like. And that's, talk about disgraces in our medical system, the, the inequality between what we do for alleged physical illness and what we do for mental illness in this country mm-hmm. is just... Oh, sure. That's another conversation entirely. That's another conversation entirely. Yes, that's the half of my family has mental health issues. I've been treated for depression myself. Thank God I have a, mm-hmm. a good psychiatrist and good medications. But, uh, you know, the limitations that those uh, illnesses place on our recovery, not only psychologically but uh, somatically, is tremendous. Well, that's what Dr. Phil is saying. <laughs> no. Well, Dr. Phil is not always wrong. Even Dr. Oz is no. not always wrong. They sometimes, true. Go off the deep, they sometimes do go off the, the deep end, and, uh, of course, that gets them more viewers and eyeballs. And The problem exactly. is the whole world, it's, it's selling things and eyeballs. I love capitalism, but it is uh, like trying to eat one piece of chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, um, uh, just this week, Dr. Redfield, the head of the CDC, yeah. created an incredible uh, uh, uproar, furor, um, with his with his one comment uh, off the cuff about uh, COVID resurfacing uh, this this fall. Um, yes. It, 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 do you think that uh, that was a a first of all that's that's very possible we all as, as oh it's, it's almost it, I would say it's probable uh, knowing what I know about our response and the fact that we're not immune and we're not of course we're not testing enough we really do have to have mass testing and contact tracing and that's where we should be putting our money into that's you know and now they are you know while everyone had their pants down it's like Pearl Harbor or nine one one what we do after we're smacked in the gut is we need to respond forcefully, as we did in both situations. And we went through to a, a kind of victory in both. And that's what we're learning now. We have to fight. Uh, the country needs to be mobilized in the same way. And it's, uh, in my opinion, it's patriotic to wear a mask. It's patriotic to follow reasonable social distancing so that you or your loved ones don't get this horrible thing. So Maybe you should, uh, maybe you should make, yeah. make some cloth masks with an American flag on it. <laughs> you know, I think that would be a great idea, and uh, it, it could say Trump was right all along. I don't care. Just wear your GD mask, you know, because that's what you have to do. And I, I think uh, uh, Mr. Donald is coming around to believe that now. This is not a so. the coronavirus was not put there to take him down or not, but it exposes the weakness of the government and our own human thinking processes. It literally looks for our weaknesses, and uh, that's mm-hmm. how viruses survive. They they survive on our our own cells, be they brain cells or, or liver cells. <laughs> so let's 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 end this this conversation. We don't have much time uh, left in the show with the origins of the disease because that's that's been a topic that now has uh, become quite quite contentious again. Unfortunately, political. Right. Uh, right. But but nonetheless, this disease started in Wuhan, China. I don't think there's anybody who would, who could deny that. Um, yeah, I, think that's, if, I think that's probably correct. Probably correct. Yes. And and there was an uh, an op-ed in yesterday's Wall Street Journal that was written by Tom Cotton, uh, the uh-huh. uh, s- senator, who um, Arkansas, yeah, mm-hmm. yes, who who um, uh, former former. Uh, Army officer, former West Pointer, and Harvard-educated yes. lawyer. Um, yeah. He uh, he he is is very critical of number one, the the uh, communist Chinese cover-up, and yeah. uh, and is uh, alleging, as are a number of people, that this was not a spontaneous mutation that jumped across species, but an engineered virus in one of the two virology laboratories in Wuhan that do not take the same precautions 
as our CDC does in handling viruses. So what's your opinion about that? I, th- I think that may have contributed. There may have been something lax. Uh, I don't know that they have a bioweapons program. You know, we did for a long time at Fort Detrick up in Maryland. I mean, I used to hear about it, although I was never a party to what they were actually doing exactly, other than they were doing some some interesting stuff. And uh, I think more it's more likely that they found this virus uh, from someone in the Wuhan area, perhaps near the live market where animals and uh, live animals and humans intermingle. And then they did not take good precautions and perhaps a lab worker got infected. I have a feeling the virus was already there. I, 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 I'm highly dubious that it was genetically uh, engineered. Uh, from the standpoint of the uh, Communist Party wanting it, I, I don't see how that furthers anything for them because they are totally dependent on trade with us to uh, have the wealth that they do. And whether that's right or wrong, uh, this is disruptive to China as well as America and international commerce. And I think it only makes their political situation worse. So I don't think it was deliberate. Uh, Could it have been sloppiness that let it get out? Yes. Uh, But even then, you know, we're, we're now finding that there are earlier cases of the virus in the United States, we've just found a couple, you know, people in uh, California, California. Had, the, had the infection early. Uh, let me just give you one other parallel. If you're not looking for it, you don't see it. So for for years, um, they had a, a disease in Africa called the SLIMS, definitely in the 1950s, which we now know was HIV. Uh, one of my prior colleagues had Sira from Africa in the 50s looking at a for herpes virus, and he, when he went and tested, he found HIV antibody in it. This is in the 1950s. So in other mm. words, HIV was there in the 50s. It manifested itself as a local epidemic here. But in Africa, where people die from so many uh, things, including malaria, I mean, fever is so common, wasting away is common, uh, parasites are common, it was never recognized. So it's a disease of, you know, uh, poor ascertainment. So we really don't know where it started. But my guess is it did jump from uh, probably bats to some uh, mammalian species. And uh, that center market there is a disaster in Wuhan ready to happen and does need to be closed down. I mean, I think that's the only thing I'll state. Did the Chinese government hide the information? I'm, I'm absolutely certain they did. Uh, and that that's not a, you know, that's just how totalitarian governments do. If it doesn't suit me, I'm not telling you. Yeah, it's interesting that if it, if there was not something um, more sinister going on than just a, uh, a, a market um, source that they wouldn't, that, that I'm, I just wonder why they expelled all Western Reporters and they destroyed all the evidence for yeah. for a uh, ep- epidemiologic uh, you know deep dive into this. That, well, that, I'm not that's sure they were trying to save their own save their own butts, which is a characteristic of politicians the world over. Except we have a much more vigorous information system, and for all its bads, everything gets out in the United States, whether it's the truth or not. Whereas in China, where the news is managed, that's not. So uh, I have no doubt that they did not act honorably and the like. And, yeah, uh, we've, know, we've I, got two. I, I, we've got two, yeah. we got two minutes, and I want to ask one quick question. Um, yes. WHO, did they do yes. a good job, a bad job? Did they, play a, did they unwittingly play a role in allowing this to get to the point that it's at? Uh, yes, all those questions. How are they? They're a bit medium effective. They're the only worldwide tool we have. Uh, a great job for people who exit CDC. I didn't stay long enough just to go to their headquarters in Lausanne, Switzerland. So I w- that's a job I would like. <laughs> but no, they do a fairly good job. Uh, we do have to keep supporting them. They are political, politically uh, oriented too, just like every other. Uh, you know, thing like the International Court at The Hague, you can't stop that. But this is not a time to cut back on funding to WHO, no matter what their limitations. So, Steve, final final thought in the last minute. Uh, is there an end point? Are we going to leave, leave our listeners with some, some uh, parting words of wisdom? 
Uh, I think we're going to rise to the occasion, especially if we have another blip up in the fall where everyone has to take it seriously. Uh, I think we're going to come to our senses and do the massive testing and tracing that we need to do. We seem to find money for everything else. And when we do it, this will be a thing of the past. I'm hoping we're going to realize that we take great, uh, uh, we don't do very well with any of our infrastructure right now, roads, bridges, teachers, uh, what we pay pediatricians. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's just interesting. And we have to face the fact that having a good infrastructure is worth the expense. Steve, thanks so much for being with us today. This was an excellent uh, conversation about COVID and other things and the and how it crosses over into politics. And, and it was, I was delighted to have you with me today, and I hope that we can get you back at some point into the doctor's lounge. Um, I'm absolutely delighted to come back. Thank you, Hal. Steve, stay, stay safe and uh, yeah, come you and too. join us You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.